Today's scripture comes to us from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread, and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Uh, Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we have heard your word being publicly read, that now you would prepare our hearts, that you would soften it in such a way that it would be like healthy, good soil, ready to receive the seed of life, that we would be ready to receive your word, and that it would be implanted deep within and bear good fruit for the flourishing and the blessing of those around us. Father, we ask that you would help us to see that though we face trials, though we face struggles and temptations, you are always faithful to give us the strength, the wisdom, and the encouragement that we need to persevere. Father, these are very trying times in which we live. And Lord, we pray that in the chaos of it all, we would not forget the first principles, the first truths in which we are to live in this world, which is as your beloved people, and that we model and extend that love to those around us. Lord, now we ask that you would hear the prayers that we lifted up, asking for you to protect our hearts so that we can be fully receptive to the word, and that also you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's go on back however many years it's been since you've been in college. And let's remember that scenario where you're studying for finals. Do you guys remember that? Some of you are like, I'm still thinking about it right now, right? Imagine that you're still in school, or maybe you are still in school, and you're studying for finals. It's finals week, and you are studying and studying hard. In fact, you are studying so hard that you stay up all night trying to memorize as much as you can your professor's lecture notes, okay? And so the day comes in which you have to take the exam. You're exhausted, but you know what? It's okay. You're confident. You're confident that you're going to ace this exam. And so you go into the classroom, sit at your normal chair. The TA hands out the examination, and once he gives you the green light, you immediately jump in. You go to the first question, and then you're horrified. You're horrified because this question is asking you a topic from the lecture notes that you decided to skip over in your studying. I mean, after all, the professor maybe only spent a day or two on it when he normally spends at least a week or so on these issues. So you thought, well, this can't be in the exam. At most, maybe it'll be an extra credit question. 
But to your horror, it's your first question. And not only that, the next 15 questions all center on this very issue that you skipped over. So frustrated, you make your best educated guesses. You finish the exam as quick as possible. Then you immediately go into your professor's office, almost disruptive him. And you say, Professor, what's going on? How can you quiz us? How can you put this on the final, this thing that was so minuscule, so insignificant, it seems, to which your professor then looks at you and says, everything I teach you, you are responsible. Every teaching that I have taught you is your responsibility to know. How many of you guys had that experience? You're thinking, none of us, Pastor, but it's clear that you have, right? (laughs) What a weird way to start a sermon. What does that have anything to do with our passage today? Well, it's been said that life is like a test, maybe like a final. In fact, one famous pastor, maybe you've heard of him, a man by the name of Rick Warren, describes life like that. Listen to what he says. Character is both developed and revealed by test, and all of life is a test. You are always being tested. God constantly watches your responses to people, problems, success, conflicts, illness, disappointment, and even the weather. When you understand that life is a test, you realize that nothing is insignificant in your life. According to Pastor Warren, you and I and every other human being are living life that could be characterized as a test, a final. And I think he's absolutely right. Which also means just as students sometimes overlook certain teachings of their teacher, so also it is possible, which I have seen, that many Christians tend to overlook the teachings of the greatest teacher of all, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one particular teaching that so many Christians tend to look past, not consider, overlook, is the teaching that Jesus is giving us today in our passage, which is being outwardly compassionate. We're continuing our annual sermon series that we do at the beginning of every year, Grow Up. And the purpose of this series is to look at the six core values that drive our ministry, the six values that identify us as us. We looked at two weeks ago the first core value, which is being a godly person. Then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the second core value, which is being relationally competent, the Christian DTR, remember? Today, we're going to talk about the third, third excuse me, core value that drives us, which is being outwardly compassionate, okay? And so to do that, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 6 and helping us understand this specific teaching of Jesus. And as we do, we're going to see two things that Jesus teaches us. First, who Christians are to be compassionate for. And number two, how Christians should be compassionate towards them. Who we as Christians are to be compassionate for and how we are to do it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, who Christians are to be compassionate for. Now, our text contains a very, very famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people. And the reason why I say that this is a very famous story is because this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very rarely do all four Gospels ever tell the same story or have all the same miracles except this one. Well, actually, that's not true. There's actually another miracle that all the four Gospels uh, record, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so those are the only two miracles that are recorded across all four Gospels, okay? And when you consider that this miracle all centers on this idea of meeting a physical need, perhaps the greatest physical need, which is our physical need for food, what does that tell us? It tells us that God cares about our physical needs as much as he cares about our spiritual needs. Again, 
God cares about our physical needs as much as he cares about our spiritual needs. I mean, don't you find it interesting that the two miracles that all four Gospels tell us all center on either our greatest spiritual need, represented by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, as well as our greatest physical need, represented by the fact that it involves food. Clearly, the fact that all four disciples felt necessary to record this miracle in connection to the resurrection tells us that Jesus himself found this issue very, very important to where all of his disciples would remember. Clearly for Jesus, our spiritual needs, like forgiveness of sins, eternal life, are just as important as well as physical needs, making sure that we have food in our stomach, shelter over our head. In fact, our passage indicates that being the case. Let's have our passage up there for just a moment. Let's read again verses 30 to 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they have done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Your attention, please. Notice. The disciples come back to Jesus from somewhere. And the question is, where are they coming back from? Well, we actually didn't read it, but if you go up to the previous verses from the verses that we read, verses 7 to 13, there you would read Jesus sending out his 12 disciples to do works of ministry. Things like preaching the gospel, things like healing the sick through prayer, right? Things like exorcising demons, Jesus sent his disciples to go on a ministry outlet, a coalition of ministry to meet people's spiritual needs. Preaching the gospel, healing people of the sick, exercising demons, they all cater to spiritual needs. And so we fast forward to our passage. They come back from a very successful ministry campaign. They're telling Jesus about all the great things that they've done, all the things that they've accomplished. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to them in response to all this wonderful news? What does he say? Guys, let's get out of here. Let's go get something to eat. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, when he hears this wonderful testimony that they're giving, but all the wonderful ministry that they've done, he doesn't say, guys, let's have a Bible study right now so that we can understand the full implications of all that you've done. Nor does he say, hey, you know what? We got to have a prayer meeting right now. We need to give thanks. We need to sing praises to God. You know, for all this great work that he did through you. He doesn't do any of that. What does he say? Guys, let's get out of here. Let's just chill out for a little bit. And let's get something to eat. Clearly this tells us that Jesus was not only concerned for the spiritual welfare of his disciples, but he was also concerned for their physical welfare as well. And this is something that all the disciples wanted to make sure that all further future disciples would understand as well. That as Christ is concerned for the physical needs of his followers, so also every Christian should be concerned for the physical needs of other followers of Christ. Let me read you two texts to verify this. The first, 1 John chapter 3, starting in the 16th verse, we read, We know what real love is because Jesus gave us his life for us. So we also ought to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And then again, James chapter 2. Listen to what it says starting in verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye 
have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it's producing good deeds. It is dead and useless. The Bible makes it clear. As followers of God, we must be concerned not only for the spiritual needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but for their physical needs as well. If there's anyone in this church who is struggling financially, materially, yes, you should expect other members of this church to help you out, to assist you in in any way possible, okay? That is clearly what Jesus teaches. But then that begs the question, are other Christians the only people to whom we should be concerned about when it comes to their physical needs? What about people outside the church? What about non-Christians? Should we be concerned for non-Christians and their material needs, their physical needs? If we see non-Christians struggling financially, struggling to eat, struggling to be clothed, Do we have any obligations to extend the kind of compassion that we would for another brother and sister in Christ? Believe it or not, some Christians would actually say, no, we don't. Let me quote to you a pastor. I'm going to keep him anonymous. Listen to what he says about this matter. Quote, I feel like a kid who says that the emperor has no clothes. But the fact of the matter is that nowhere does the Bible command the church to care for the poor of the world, to lower the poverty rates in society, or to care for the homeless in our community. There are zero verses that command this and several that even argue against it. The church is never commanded to show compassion to the poor as a means for expanding the kingdom. Simply put, you owe the poor the gospel. Jesus died to purchase for them the privilege of hearing the testimony of his death and resurrection. That is both the most and the least you can give, end quote. Interesting. According to this pastor... The only compassion we are to have is inwardly compassion, where the only people that we are concerned with in terms of their physical needs are just people who are already in the church, people who are already following Christ. In other words, this pastor does not believe in this notion of outwardly compassionate, that we have no responsibility to the non-Christian world except for only their spiritual needs, right? Just share the gospel, just evangelize. That's it. That's all we are to do. The problem with that thinking aside from the fact that it's absolutely retarded, is that it goes against what Jesus showed, what Jesus himself does here in our passage. Read again, verse 32, to the middle of verse 34. And they went away in the boat and to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Notice Jesus and his disciples arrived to the location where he wanted to take them so they can rest, so that they can recover, so they can get something to eat. But lo and behold, who was waiting for them but a massive crowd. And notice how Jesus describes them. How does Jesus describe them in this passage? He says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Do you guys know what the main job of a shepherd is to a sheep? You know what the main job of a shepherd is? Feed the flock. The main job of a shepherd is to ensure that his sheep have something to eat. Okay? So when Jesus describes this crowd as, quote, sheep without a shepherd, what does that tell us? It tells us that this crowd, obviously from just the initial appearance of them, were starving. And when you add that to the phrase that most of them ran on foot, tells us how desolate and desperate they were. 
in their hunger. It's so interesting. Every time I read this passage in the Gospels or this story in the Gospels, it always reminds me of another story I once heard from a pastor who did a lot of social justice work in Southeast Asia. Listen to how he recounts a story that he, uh, of an experience that he had as he was doing this work. This is Pastor Art Beals. Listen to what he says. It all looked a little unreal, like an oversized Cecile B. DeMille movie lot. But this was no stage extravaganza, no cinematic illusion. I was watching it happen right before my unbelieving eyes. And the tens of thousands of people who came streaming out of the Cambodian jungle weren't paid Hollywood extras. They were bewildered men, women, and children, very real, excuse me, very frightened and very hungry. They kept coming and coming, multitudes, masses, endless lines of what appeared to be carelessly clothed skeletons drawn across the miles by the promise of food. I find it so interesting that when you compare how Pastor Art Beals describes the crowd, it's eerily identical to how Jesus describes the crowd. And the question becomes, how did Jesus react to this massive crowd? What did he do? What does it say? Verse 34, he had compassion on them. He had compassion. Why is that so significant? You want to know why? If you read John's version of this same story, because they're all in four Gospels, right? You come to find out that many of the people in this crowd were not even followers of Jesus at all. If you read John's version of this story, John goes on to tell us of how the following day, this same crowd came back to Jesus for more food. And it's in that interaction that we come to discover that many of them were never followers of Jesus, and later on we find out that many of them never became followers of Jesus. Listen to what it says in John 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's work too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Question, why would Jesus tell this crowd to believe in the one that the Father has sent if these people were already disciples? The answer, he wouldn't. These people who made up this crowd, they were not already followers of Christ. They were not his disciples. And when you add to that the fact that he showed compassion while they were still not his followers, what does that tell us, Christian? It tells us that Jesus was not only just concerned for the physical needs of his disciples, but he was also concerned for the physical needs of those who were not his disciples. And if we are called to be like Jesus, if we are called to be like him in this world, does that not also teach us that our compassion towards one another should be extended to those, even those outside of the church, even those who don't follow Christ now, maybe never will? Isn't that clearly the indication of what this text is teaching us? My desire for you right now is for you to hear what I'm about to say. Do not fail life by neglecting to overlook what Jesus clearly teaches us here. Jesus clearly teaches that if you follow him, 
If you are trying to be like him, you need to be like him in his compassion as well. Your compassion cannot be only within the realms of those who already follow him. It has to be extended to those outside of the church. We as followers of Christ are called to be inwardly compassionate, definitely, but also outwardly compassionate. We are called to extend our concern for the physical needs of human beings to those who are Christians as well as to those who are non-Christian as well. We are called to be outwardly compassionate. But therein lies the problem. How do we do it? Because as easy it is to overlook this teaching of Jesus, it's much easier to not even attempt it at all. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when you try to be outwardly compassionate, when you try to serve the poor, when you try to minister to those who are without, it is very, very hard. It is very complicated to where you might face failure, you might face danger, you might face a lot of uh, stupidity on your end to the point where you might not even want to attempt it at all. And so the question is, how do we do it? How do we do it? The answer leads me to my final point, how to be outwardly compassionate. In this passage, Jesus shows us that there are three vital things that we must consider. Three things that we must always have when we attempt to be outwardly compassionate. And those three things are collaboration, humility, and teaching. One more time. The three vital things that we as the church need to do If we want to do outward compassion and do it well, is we need collaboration, we need humility, and we need teaching. Let's quickly go through that. First, collaboration. Take another look at how the disciples reacted to the crowds in verses 35 to 36. Can we have it up there? Let's read it again. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, just from a casual reading of those verses, you can easily pick up the aggravation, the frustration, even the anger of the disciples as they are confronted with the massive need of this crowd, right? And the question is, why are the disciples being so cold? Why are they being so angry? How can they respond to a crowd that's clearly in need, right, and be so cold to basically just show a cold shoulder to them? Let's let's, let's just get rid of them, Jesus, Well, some people think that it's because they themselves are tired. They themselves are are hungry. You know, it's kind of like that Snicker bar commercial, you know. They haven't had a Snickers yet, so their worst comes out. They just have a poor case of the hangries, you know, the hangries, you know, anger, hunger, point together. They're they're very hangry right now, right? Maybe that's true, but I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason for their anger. In fact, Jesus hints to what that is indirectly with what he says From verses 38 to 40. Let's read it one more time. And he, Jesus, said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. What is Jesus telling his disciples to do at a basic level? He's telling them, guys, let's work together. Let's collaborate. Come on. Get together. Work in groups, right? Verse 40, he specifically says, hey, I want you to organize the groups by 50s and 100s. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like military formation, right? It's like Jesus told his disciples to be platoon sergeants and company commanders, right? Get together, work. You know, for those of you who've been in the military, you know. 
that collaboration is crucial. There is no individuality in the military. There is no doing it on your own. You work together. It's all teamwork, right? That's all about collaboration, work together as a team. Now, what's the point? The point is this. Christian, if you want to be outwardly compassionate, do not do it by yourself. When you want to care for the poor, advocate for the disenfranchised, if you want to feed the hungry, don't go all lone ranger and try to do it all on your own. You need to come together. You need to work together. You need collaboration with one another. Because if you don't, you end up very bitter, very angry, just like the disciples. And if that doesn't make sense to you, let me read to you a quote from a theologian named Henry Nowen, because I think he perfectly explains what's going on to their anger. He says this, exposure to human misery can lead to psychic numbness and hostility. This might seem strange, but when you look more closely at the human response to disturbing information, we realize that confrontation with human pain often creates anger instead of care, irritation instead of sympathy, and even fury instead of compassion. Human suffering, which comes to us in a way and on a scale that makes identification practically impossible, frequently evokes strong negative feelings. How can we account for this psychic numbness and anger? Numbness and anger are the reaction of the person who says, listen, when I can't do anything about it anyhow, why do you bother me with it? Confronted with human pain and at the same time reminded of our powerlessness, we often feel offended at the very core of our being and fall back on our defenses of numbness and Anger, end quote. If you start off thinking, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to feed the poor, and you think you can go all on your own, and you get bombarded with the magnitude of the need that you clearly cannot get around yourself, you think you're going to be happy about that? You think you're going to feel good about yourself? You think you're still going to be compassionate towards the poor? No, you're going to get annoyed at them. It's like, geez, how hard is this, right? This is why collaboration is necessary. Because no individual is strong enough, smart enough, capable enough of being able to confront and overcome the struggles and the massive needs of the poor. The poor have needs that go beyond any one individual, in fact, even beyond one individual church. You need collaborations. You need to work together. You need synergy. You need to work with people who are like you, different from you, think exactly like you, think different from you, have different experience, similar experience, all working together in such a way so that you can collaborate and effectively do the work of outward compassion. But, of course, that's easier said than done, is it not? Because as New Yorkers, that's hard for us. As New Yorkers, we are discipled at a very early age by this city that if we want to make it big here, we've got to make it on our own. We've got to make ourselves resourceful. We've got to make ourselves competent. We've got to be better than the next person around us. It's not about collaboration. It's every man for himself. We're here to make it to the top because if I can make it here, I am the king everywhere, right? We live in a city that is constantly trying to indoctrinate us that collaboration is not what you do. Independent, individual triumph is what you accomplish. And so that really goes against our natural tendencies, doesn't it? As New Yorkers, we don't want to collaborate. We don't want to cooperate. We don't want to share the credit. We don't want to share resources, which is why we need the second vital thing if we want to be outwardly compassionate, and that is humility. Humility. Go back to our passage. How many total loaves, how many total fish had the disciples come up with? Five loaves, two fish. Not very impressive, right? (laughs) 
And that's the point. You know, one of the unfortunate things that happens often when people attempt to be outwardly compassionate is that they approach it with a very pompous, arrogant spirit to where they think they know everything, to where they think they know how to handle situations when in fact they know nothing, and really they don't know what they're doing whatsoever. I mean, isn't it interesting? Why does Jesus take his disciples to a desolate place to eat? (laughs) Do you guys know what a desolate place is? It's a deserted place. That's what desolate means. And you know what a deserted place is back then? It's the desert. Deserted place is the, it's the wilderness. What is there to eat in the desert? Nothing. <laughs> right? This is before man versus wild and all this crazy survival. People don't know how to eat in the What is there to, why is Jesus sending his disciples to go and rest and eat in the desert? What's going on here? Why would Jesus do something like that? Here's why. These guys, these disciples, just came back from a very successful campaign where they preached the gospel and people got saved, where they prayed over people, putting oil on them, where they got miraculously healed, and they exorcised demons. They actually commanded demons, evil spirits, to come out of people. Let me ask you an honest question. If you did some of those things, if you accomplished those things, how would you feel about yourself? Be honest. If you were able to preach a sermon and people were like, I believe, right? Or if you were able to say, be healed, and they're healed, or demon, get out, and they're out. I mean, how would you feel about yourself? You'd feel pretty powerful, would you not? Maybe even just as powerful as Jesus himself. It's so interesting. You kind of miss it if you don't pay attention. In verse 36, do you realize that the disciples are actually ordering Jesus? In verse 36, Jesus, go and tell these people to leave. As if Jesus is their disciple rather than them being his disciple. Who do these guys think they are? I'll tell you who they think they are. They think they're Jesus. They think they're the Messiah. They think they're just as capable as the Messiah. They think they're just as powerful as the Messiah. You see, these 12 men unfortunately have developed what is known as a messianic complex. A savior complex where they think they're just as capable, just as resourceful as Jesus himself. And so Jesus, seeing that in their heart, they're like, okay, you think you're just as resourceful as me? You're just as powerful as me? You're just as smart as me? Let's take it to a challenge. Come, let's rest. Let's go to the desert where the only thing you can rely on is just you. Just you. And let's see what you're able to do. In this situation, yeah, you came off from this amazing ministry time where you did all these things, and now it's gotten to your head? All right, let's go out to the desert, and let's see if you can actually do what I'm able to do out there. And so what do they do? Go, do, five loaves, two fish. And yet what does Jesus do with that meager amount? Multiplies it, multiplies it to where there's leftovers, fed 5,000 people. With a meager amount of five loaves, two fish, how do you think the apostles, the disciples, felt at that moment? Do you think they felt as powerful as Jesus? (laughs) Probably not. There's a lesson for us here, Christian, and that is this. You must make sure that you are humble before you attempt to be outwardly compassionate. You must be sure that you don't see yourself more than you really should when you seek to bless and to serve those who are less fortunate as you. Listen, just because you have more education, just because you have more money, 
just because you have more resources or that you're more resourceful doesn't mean you are superior over the poor like Jesus is superior over the poor because you're not Jesus. You are not the Messiah. You are not him. You are not Christ. You are not their savior. And if you think you are, you're going to look like an utter fool just like the disciples did with your own proverbial form of five loaves and two fish. If you want to be outwardly compassionate, you must start with humility. But therein lies the question, how do you do that? How do you become humble? How do you be a humble person? Well, you need a third and vital thing in order to be outwardly compassionate, and that is teaching. Notice the very first thing that Jesus does for the crowd as soon as they come to him. Verse 40, 34. What does he do? Let's read it. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Interesting. Here is a crowd starving, visibly starving, and what does Jesus do first and foremost? He teaches them. Uh, Jesus, what are you doing here? Do you not see the gravity of their situation, right? Why are you first teaching this crowd and not feeding the crowd? Or if I could put it this way, why are you first filling their minds and not filling their stomachs first? What's this deal of putting teaching ahead of feeding? Jesus is trying to teach us the ultimate reason for this crowd's poverty and really for every poverty that's out there. And to explain, let me read to you a quote from a missionary named Daryl Miller. Listen to what he says. It's kind of long, but it's worth reading. Why are, poor, why are people poor and hungry? Physical poverty doesn't just happen. It's the logical result of the way people look at themselves and the world, the stories that they tell to make sense of their world. Physical poverty is rooted in a mindset of poverty, a set of ideas held corporately that produce certain behaviors. These behaviors can be institutionalized into the laws and structures of society. The consequences of these behaviors and structure is poverty. In the West, we used to call it pauperism. While the word has been largely abandoned as old-fashioned, the concept poverty of mind endures. Those with a poverty of mind see the world through glasses of poverty. They say, or their actions say for them, I am poor. I will always be poor, and there is nothing I can do about it. Form of fatalism. Or, as many say today, I am poor because others made me poor. They are going to have to solve the problem for me. I cannot. As with all false worldviews, this kind of thinking is rooted in man's sin and rebellion against his creator, who created a world of abundance and blessing. Man's alienation from God and God's principles produces a mindset of poverty that further poisons the mind, spirit, and heart. This pauper mentality has consequences in the physical world, leaving the people poor and hungry and unable to even imagine a way of escape. End quote. According to missionary... Miller, the ultimate reason why people are hungry, why people are poor, is because their thinking is not correct. They're thinking of themselves, they're thinking of God, they're thinking of the world is completely off. And the reason why their view of themselves and the world is off is because of human sin, mankind's rebellion against his creator. Now listen, I have to say this before I go on. Please do not misunderstand with what I just said. Because it is possible for you to come to two wrong conclusions with what I just said. So let me quickly address it. First of all, I am not saying 
that the only reason why people are poor and hungry or that the exclusive reason why people are poor and hungry is because of sin. Rather, I'm saying the ultimate reason, the fundamental reason why there is poverty everywhere is because of sin. Obviously, there are penultimate reasons why there is poverty and hunger, right? Disease, war, corrupt government, natural disasters, which Scripture says all stem from what? Sin. There it is again, right? Even though sin may not be the immediate direct cause of a particular instance of poverty and hunger amongst a certain region, nevertheless, sin is always the fundamental, ultimate reason for why there is poverty and hunger everywhere. So that's the first conclusion I don't want you to make. The second conclusion I don't want you to make in light of what I just said is that I don't want you to think that because sin is the ultimate reason why there's poor and poverty, that those who are poor and impoverished are more sinful and more broken than those who are not poor and those who are not impoverished. Yes, it is true. Sin is the ultimate cause, ultimate reason why there is poverty, why there's homelessness. But that doesn't mean that those who are homeless, those who are poor, are more sinful, more immoral, more broken than those who are not. And this is something that you who are middle class, you guys need to get. Because one of the false equivalents that people make is that they assume that people who are beneath them from a social economic standpoint is also beneath them morally, also beneath them from a righteousness standpoint, to where they think that they are superior morally, that they are superior from a righteous standpoint. Not only is that wrong, but that will cause tremendous destruction to the poor and to you. Listen to how one Christian relief worker puts it. He says this, as we engage with low-income people, it is absolutely imperative that we constantly remind ourselves that all of us, regardless of our income level, are profoundly broken and desperately in need of the restorative work of Jesus Christ. Failing to embrace this fundamental truth will lead us to inadvertently harming low-income people and ourselves. When the materially non-poor, wealthy people, try to help the materially poor, Each party brings their respective brokenness into the process. The materially non-poor often exhibit an air of superiority and play God by trying to fix the materially poor, thereby confirming what the materially poor are already feeling. I am inferior. I can't do it. Other people need to do it for me. The result is often that the material poor becomes more passive, sitting back and waiting for others to fix their problems. And as this happens, the material and non-poor often become more proud. I knew they didn't have my work ethic and initiative. Why don't they just do something to improve their lives? As a result, the shame of the materially poor people is deepened and the pride of the materially non-poor is enhanced. The only way of breaking out of this unhealthy dynamic is that we materially non-poor need to repent of our trust in material resources and our own sense of superiority. The key is to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. We were all profoundly broken people who deserved eternal punishment, but through Christ's death and resurrection and absolutely no merit of our own, we are now the adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly Father, end quote. The only way that we can effectively help and serve the poor without hurting them and harming ourselves is if we constantly remember the teaching of Jesus, the gospel, the gospel. Because it's by remembering the gospel that we are taught again and again that we middle-class people are in no way superior or better off or better in any category than those who are less fortunate than us. And they are not inferior in any way to us. This is why 
Before Jesus feeds the stomachs, he feeds their mind with truth. Because he is trying to teach the crowd, you are not beneath these disciples. And these disciples are not better than you. You are all recipients of my love. To where if you repent of your sins, if you make me the Lord of your life, if you make me the meaning of your existence, all of the problems that cause us poverty, namely human sin, has been completely eradicated, completely paid for. You see, this is why teaching is so important. Why we must remember the gospel. Because by remembering the gospel, we know our place as middle-income people. We are not better than anyone. That leads us to humility. And that further causes us willingness to collaborate and to work together in such a way that we can effectively and efficiently love on our non-Christian poor, non-Christian neighbor who are struggling. Those are the three vital things we need if we want to be outwardly compassionate. We need to have a spirit of collaboration. But in order to have that, we need to have humility. And the only way we can have humility is if we remember the teaching of Christ, if we remember the gospel. And so I want to end this message with this charge, NCF. Are you making sure that you're studying everything? (laughs) Are you making sure you're not overlooking the vital teachings of Jesus? Jesus makes it clear, though he tests us, the underlying assumption is he wants us to ace this thing known as life. And he's given us all the resources that we need to ace it well. Perfect score. All it takes is a teachable heart for you to not overlook every vital aspect of what he teaches us in his word. And so my question to you is, yes, you may have studied what it means to be holy. Yes, you may have studied what it means to be relationally competent, how to have a good marriage, how to raise good kids. Yes, you may have been taught how to have a prayerful life. Yes, you may have been taught of what it has to mean to have a Christian worldview, to have wisdom. But have you forgotten outward compassion? My hope and prayer is that as a church, We wouldn't be neglectful in anything, but that we would be the healthy church that we need to be in making sure that we embrace, learn, and apply all that God has taught us so that in that truth, we can shine forth the light of that truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. What say you? Are you going to receive it? Are you going to hear it? And are you going to live it out? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we think more about what it means to be a blessing to the world, we know that sometimes we tend to overlook the things that we assume are not a priority for us personally. But Lord, we pray that we would not make that mistake, that we would not be so foolish, and that as we attempt to live a life of outward compassion, that we would do so with profound humility, with a spirit of collaboration, that is both driven by a constant awareness and reminder of the truth of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the glorious gospel. Father, I pray that NCF would be a church known not only for having godly people, not only for having people who are relationally competent, not only people who are wise, not only people who are committed to the universal church, not only people committed to prayer, but that we would also be known, evidenced by our works, by our compassion both within the church and to those outside of it. Father, would you enable us to hear that call and to respond to it appropriately so that as people see us, they would not see 
us ourselves, but the one to whom show compassion to all, our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But if you are a member of our church, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.